Support for Interchange comes from Limestone Post, an independent online magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas, in-depth stories about the arts, environment, social issues, and more. You can discover Limestone Post articles and learn more about the upcoming print edition, a commemorative art magazine dedicated to local history and a sense of place, at limestonepost.com. Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. Support for Interchange comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today we pledge allegiance to what Ralph Ellison called a sorrowful laughter for all. Our show is One Blues Invisible, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. We open with Waitin' for Benny, a jam session from 1941 featuring jazz guitarist Charlie Christian, an artist who, like Ralph Ellison, discovered the new world of jazz in Oklahoma City. In 1958, the Saturday Review published Ralph Ellison's The Charlie Christian Story. Christian might stand in as Ellison's alter ego. Ellison writes, The wooden tenement in which he grew up was full of poverty, crime, and sickness. It was alive and exciting, and I enjoyed visiting there, for the people both lived and sang the blues. Charlie Christian's genius was a brief triumph that would have a deep influence on jazz greats to come. Guest host Jason Fickle serves as our guide today as he returns to Interchange with M. Cooper Harris. Fickle is a guitarist and songwriter, and Harris is an assistant professor in the Religious Studies Department at Indiana University. They joined us previously to discuss how the blues inflected the fiction of Zora Neale Hurston, highlighted by the music of Lizzie Douglas, better known as Memphis Minnie. The occasion of the Fickle-Harris reunion is Harris's new book, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Theology, published by NYU Press. Harris finds in Ellison's masterpiece his only completed novel, an underlying civil-religious orientation, or as J. Cameron Carter of the Duke University Divinity School puts it, an invisible theology of an unseen blackness that works through and against the grain of America's original sin, racism. Ellison's The Charlie Christian Story opens with the revelation of America and its one original art form. Quote, Jazz, like the country which gave it birth, is fecund in its inventiveness, swift and traumatic in its developments, and terribly wasteful of its resources. It is an orgiastic art which demands great physical stamina of its practitioners, and many of its most talented creators die young." Unquote. True of Charlie Christian, dead of tuberculosis in 1942. He was just 25 years old. And now, One Blues Invisible, with Jason Fickle and M. Cooper Harris on Interchange. Thank you. 
Well, you've written a wonderful book uh, called Ralph Ellison's Invisible Theology, uh, NYU Press. Yes. came out last year. And I was wondering if you could just, uh, if you'd be up for reading that very first paragraph on page one, which I think is a great, um, you know, it's on page one. It's a great place to sure. start. Start at the very beginning. Go ahead. Uh, and this section is called The Problem with Invisibility. I am an invisible man, begins Ralph Ellison's first novel, calling into existence what has become a prominent and evocative metaphor for speaking of racial experience, and indeed the experiences of all socially marginalized people, since the volume's publication in 1952. Invisibility, evolving over the course of 65 years, has come to hold primarily social and materialist intellectual currency, spawning a significant trend in academic book titles and serving as a political shorthand for marginality or liminality, an identity and agency overlooked or ignored by more official versions of humanity. In the midst of this materialism invisibility, as it signifies prominent understandings of racial identity, remains a secular property. This book argues that invisibility, in fact, represents a great deal more. Thank you very much. Thanks. It's a, it's a great intro. Uh, that was Cooper Harris um, reading from his book, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Theology. So, um, Ralph Ellison's uh, Invisible Man came out about April 14th, 1952. Yes. And, um, and it really was a sensation. So, tell us first a, a little bit of background, um, how you came to the novel, how you came to study this, sure. the novel. You know, I think uh, my experience was similar to many people's. Uh, you, be it through school or through a pile of books, you find this novel that's so evocatively titled and you start reading it and you hear that first phrase, I am an invisible man, uh, and, and you're kind of hooked. And the more, the deep, more deeply you read, the stranger and funnier and uh, more frightening things become. And so for me, it was, it was really one of these moments where I was gripped in the beginning. And it, it actually helped me to think of myself as an academic or a scholar, trying to imagine ways that I could uh, think about or write about all these things that I saw in this book. I was reading about Louis Armstrong. I was reading uh, Ellison's sort of deep blues and jazz sensibility, and I was recognizing many of these things. And so this is one of the things that really hooked me for, for the, the novel. It was one of the first novels that I was able to see perhaps more deeply into. Wow, that's great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, and the novel itself obviously made quite a mark. It was, um, he won the National Book Award, I th right. think, that next year he did. for the novel. Um, but Ellison himself comes, uh, he, he, can you tell us about what he calls his antecedents? Because a lot of people sure. kind of want to make it a racial book, which it is. Yes, very much. <laughs> very much. But he was very different from his own mentors, like Richard Wright, for example. Exactly. Um, you know, by the time Invisible Man is published, he's almost 40. Uh -huh. So this is, uh, it's a first novel, but it's a, it's a novel of some accomplishment that comes at a, um, this, this isn't a 22-year-old who publishes this. He's made uh, a life and a career for himself as a intellectual, as a first as a man of the left, Mm -hmm. But then uh, over time, uh, with some fallings out with people like Richard Wright, Langston Hughes, uh, there's, there's a kind of difficulty um, between them. I think they still try to like one another, but Ellison finds himself uh, moving away from 
understanding the a kind of aesthetic of race mm-hmm. in the same way that Wright does. Wright uh, publishes the novel uh, Native Son in mm-hmm. 1940, uh, which is a wonderful novel. But it's a novel that that sort of takes the idea that racism is real and bad and holds it up and hits it with a hammer, uh, you know, a thousand right. times. Right. Yeah. And and Ellison wondered uh, if if there wasn't another way, if there wasn't a way that he could draw on uh, 19th century American literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dostoevsky, for instance, he's, mm-hmm. he's referencing Sophocles, Cervantes, mm-hmm. uh, as well as people like T.S. Eliot and Faulkner, who are mm-hmm. maybe more immediate antecedents. And it, and it wasn't a, a denial of, uh, of his his idea of, of wasn't that black literature had to draw immediately from white literature, but for him, and this isn't an unproblematic point, but his his point was that uh, a a real statement of the type that he wanted to make had to draw from had to had to bring his experience as a black man in America parallel with something like a Shakespearean tragedy. Yeah, yeah, and I I was intrigued in your book how you mentioned the. Um his connection to Melville actually is right. interesting. In fact, um, yeah, the uh, the book title that begins uh, Benito. Yes, uh, Benito Serino. Se- thank you, Benito Serino, especially. Yeah, I right. thought that was a very interesting connection. And and really, the even the the Moby Dick, uh, beginning of Moby Dick, where uh, right. walking into the black church, um, mm-hmm. and and in this novel, we're into that right away in the prologue of uh, Invisible Man. Right. No, and very much a kind of conscious use of these, of these sources, reframing them, setting them in, in different contexts. So it's uh, it's the, uh, in in Moby Dick, for instance, he walks into the black church, but very quickly, it sort of, he freaks out. And yeah, leaves, yeah, he runs out. Right. <laughs> and, but but Ellison in the prologue sort of lingers. Yeah, stays. And there. imagines. And so one of the things he's really fascinated by is. Uh, He's he's actually a, a early proponent of whiteness studies. I see a lot of what Toni Morrison talks about whiteness huh. uh, in Ellison. I don't know to what degree she would claim or agree with that, but his idea was that there is something about uh, that the absences are are presences if you can ah. imagine them out. And so one of the things, so for instance, with the uh, with this church at the beginning of Moby Dick is, mm-hmm. is Ellison is. Um, I think emphasizing a kind of presence. Right, right, yeah. This is Gone to Main Street by Muddy Waters, which came out as a single just months after the publication of Invisible Man. Muddy Waters was born McKinley Morganfield in 1913, the same year as Ralph Ellison. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. I'm gonna take you downtown and put shoes on your feet. You know I love you, girl. Tell everybody your name. When I take you downtown, I'm gonna put clothes on your back. When I take you downtown, I'm gonna put clothes on your back. I mean, loving you, baby. Anything you like. 
That was Muddy Waters with Gone to Main Street. Back to One Blues Invisible on Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man with host Jason Fickle and scholar M. Cooper Harris. In this segment, Harris and Fickle track the basic outline of the novel and its characters, as well as the way the novel uses the Communist Party of the United States as a kind of antagonist. You know, we should take a step back and, and describe the, the novel a little bit more for sure. those of us who Some people uh, read it, um, and then, um, you know, it might have been a long time ago. But it is, it is for me, um, it was interesting for me to go back through it again. He, well, I keep saying we we say he because we should. This is a, a critical point in the novel. A critical concept is our protagonist. Uh, we never know. We never learn his name. Right. He he, and he assumes other identities along the way. Interestingly, and um, but so that's why we. I, I think both of us. Well, it kind of could be confused. We can't turn and say, well, Huck then jumps off the raft because we don't know this person's name. So right. But he goes by. Well, so we call him the protagonist. I think. Call him protagonist. Ellison called him invisible. Like ah. like a first name in, in his letters, but oh, really? close friends. But but yes, so some people say the protagonist or the invisible man or Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So he starts out um in uh in the South. Right. And um mirroring o- uh, Ellison's own life uh, attends an institution uh, seems to be based on Tuskegee. Is right. Would, would that is that the case? I think that's right. I mean you can you know, you're always supposed to deny that there are these direct correlations. Right, but right. but Ellison was a Tuskegee man and, and there are uh, plenty of parallels here that I think we can think of them as as versions of versions of the same place in parallel universes, perhaps. Okay, and then um, our protagonist ends up in a couple, what I would say, comic or tragic comic situations. Yes. <laughs> in uh, when he uh, takes what what I think is a donor to the universe to the college. Right. Uh, uh, Mr. Norton, maybe. Mr. Norton, right? Yeah. I've always wondered the degree to which that was like the Norton anthology of literature. Yeah, yeah or something. I had the same thought actually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he takes uh, he takes Norton around, um, meets uh, a local uh, a local family. Right. Um, problematic issues there, but incredibly interesting. Right. And then uh, then stumbles across what I think is going to be kind of a what we would today might call a honky-tonk or a mm-hmm. juke joint, really. The golden day. The golden day. The golden day. And comes across a group of people at the golden day who I think are, are veterans right. of They're the recent war. Veterans of what's probably World War One. Right, right. Um, and it's just a, it becomes rapidly surreal at that point. Right. So the donor, of course, is, is one of the... Uh, He's an old progenitor after the war of the white man's burden. Right. He worked alongside the founder uh, to to sort of found this college for Negroes, as it's called, uh, and and sees his own destiny very much wrapped up within these students. Right. But it's very clear too that he's trying to manage uh, a sense of what uh, blackness is, what black people should be, to develop a kind of contribution that is. Yeah, at, at once useful and benevolent, but also you know, paternalistic and and creepy as well. <laughs> right, and, right. It and is. so one of the things I love about this is that Ellison had to have had a, 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 a riot sort of thinking of all the different predicaments and places he could put him, the different right. kinds of things that he could witness. So true. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He go he um, he 
kind of they get in trouble at the Golden Day, right? And and then um, end up back at the college. The college president uh, Bledsoe. The esteemed Bledsoe, yes. yeah, Bledsoe, uh, essentially comes with a very novel, uh, excuse the pun, but a novel way of kicking um, kicking our protagonist out of the college. Sends him north, right, with letters, with letters, which are sealed. Exactly, and and this shows, I think, the naivete as well of of our protagonist, in that he is still thinking and believing that he is going to be an important man in the same vein as Bledsoe, as the founder. Right, the founder, and it's yes. just these. Uh, who is a Booker T. Washington figure? figure. Right, and and it's these letters, which of course uh, I don't think I'm spoiling anything here to say, which actually seal his doom. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's it's incredible. And so then the whole novel, the the novel, except for some brief kind of reminiscences, uh, which are critical, especially about his grandfather. But he never, we never go back to the South. Right, we, we're pretty much in Harlem. He spends most of the novel thinking eventually maybe he will go back, right? right he's planning, right. He's, he's going to go make a success up north and then come back south. But we, of course, never do. Right. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is One Blues Invisible, about what guest M. Cooper Harris calls the invisible theology in Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Jason Fickle is our host. Okay, so he encounters um, of the many people he encounters in 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 Harlem, the Brotherhood. Yes. Um, which uh, I think we could say is the Communist Party, right? Pretty yes. much, um, kind of reflecting the Communist Party that Richard Wright was in. Is that is that how you see that, or or it was how did Ellison know this so well? Again, I mean, we shouldn't map it on, but if you right, could conjecture no, I, for I mean, us. and this is part of the the politics that I think. Um, Estranged him some. Um, the Ellison, as far as we know, was never technically a member. Of course, okay. a lot of people were members that right. weren't members later, right. and these kinds of things. But I, I think one of the things that Ellison was frustrated with was, and we and we see this play out in the novel, was the the assumptions that, especially white uh, communist white leftists made about knowing very well what all of these marginalized people need. Right. And so trying to impose a, a kind of um, a kind of vision of, of that society uh, and, and effectively using the people for as long as they're needed and then dropping them right. for this larger cause. And that kind of was what happens to the protagonist as well. Right. And, and then there's other situations that he gets into that I, I find very funny, and I don't know yes. if they're meant to be funny. Um, there's tragicomic. A, tragicomic, uh, yes. Yeah. So there's a, the, the paint factory, for oh, example. Oh, the paint factory. So, uh, and, and the paint factory, of course, the, the, the joke is that it, it is the Liberty Paints. Liberty Paint. It makes the whitest white paint out there, optic white. <laughs> optic white, that's right. And the way that the whitest of the white, the, the whitest of the white, the color that is the whitest of all whites, and there's a, a phrase we could probably find in the book. Yeah. Uh, the way this is achieved is by introducing a drop of black paint. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so here we begin to see again this kind of way that Ellison's playing with notions of purity. Right. And... Uh, and I mean, racial purity, of course, and, yeah. and questions of color. Uh, you know, there's a great quotation in, uh, he was interviewed by the Paris Review mm-hmm. not long after, a couple of years after Invisible Man came out, I think it was 54 or 55. 
and they're going on and on about, so are you protesting here? What, what does this mean? How, how are you, what are your politics? And he finally stops and you can almost, you can almost imagine this. He, he stops and says, look, didn't you think the book was funny? <laughs> That's good. I'm glad to hear that because I, yeah, I found parts of it just yeah. hilariously funny. Um, and 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 uh, could you speak a little bit about another character, um, Rass the Destroyer? Yes. Uh, what a fascinating figure. I, I, I had a hard time placing him. Mm-hmm. He, he's mentioned very much early in the prologue, right. and as our protagonist says, we'll kind of get we'll get to him later, mm-hmm. and then when we get to him at the end as well. Right. So, so who is Ras the Destroyer so, in the book? Ras, Ras the Ras, Ras the Destroyer. It, I've heard I, both. Okay. It's uh, he is a he begins as the Exhorter, right? And then becomes the Destroyer, right? He is uh, very much of a type that one would have seen in Harlem in the '30s. Okay. Uh, sort of West Indies derived figure, a Garveyite. Okay. Uh, ah, Marcus Garvey. Sort of, yes, right. building off of Marcus Garvey, Black Power. Mm-hmm. Um, a precursor to what we might have seen later with Nation of Islam, Malcolm X. You have more ah. science. You have these these groups, these black nationalist groups that are already sort of there and circulating. Uh-huh. Uh, but he becomes, I think, really a mouthpiece for a, another kind of, of black identity that is um, in circulation and, and quite... Uh, it might be a stretch to say popular, but, uh, but people are listening to this. It's making sense to people, which is a kind of um, a kind of separatism, uh-huh. uh, a kind of self-sufficiency, uh-huh. a right. kind of you know we don't need the white man for any of this. Um, and so, through th- again, it's it's a, it's another layer in I think what is a sophisticated portrait of. Um, black New York or black Harlem mm-hmm. uh, in the 30s that Ellison is drawing. And of course, this is the Harlem that he himself emerged into in the mid-30s. So he's right. he's really drawing from the street scenes and scapes that, that he knew well and was, and was marveled by as a young man. Right. Um, yeah, in fact, the descriptions of him kind of getting off of the subway in the city is just yes. is a remarkable descriptions. And, and, you know, as someone like me who did not grow up in New York, I have that same feeling of oh. being in a subway and getting off the subway and looking around yeah. and it's just marveling at the, at the whole thing. And he really mm-hmm. um, gets at that as well. Um, there's so many other characters uh, I want to talk about. One that's very poignant, I found so poignant, is the Todd Clifton character. Yes. Um, who really, uh, and you may, we can talk about this some more, uh, Todd Clifton felt like he kind of s- stepped into uh, 2018 for me. Um, right. figure. Can you describe the Todd Clifton? Yeah, so bit? Todd Clifton is young. He's mm-hmm. attractive. Uh, he's, a, he's, he's charismatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the protagonist sees him as competition initially in the, uh, in the Brotherhood. And he has these, these, this program going on. Right. That's successful. That's successful. Right. He's he's rallying people. He's attracting people. And of course, what he's doing is he's attracting um, black people in Harlem to the cause of the Brotherhood. Right. And so, as opposed to say Raz the Exhorter or some other organization, this is the Brotherhood, which is run by by white people downtown, basically. Right. 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 Yeah. And uh, and Todd then meets. Um, takes a tragic his life takes a tragic turn he's he um ends up uh selling uh kind of a sambo doll i right. think is what or a sambo figurine or something yeah it's uh, this doll almost a marionette figure a paper doll kind of a dancing, with, and I've, I've, yeah. yes and and this is midtown i think he runs into a midtown certainly right. down not in harlem yeah and and yeah he has a a, a kid who is his lookout yeah and 
he's selling and he winds, winds up being, uh, I think, killed by a police officer. Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, it Which was, steps into 2018. Yeah, in that, that's yeah. kind of where that's kind of where I was um, I was going there. Well, another uh, figure I want to get to that pops up in the book is Petey Wheatstraw, yes, the devil's son-in-law. The devil's son-in-law. Uh, Ellison himself is pretty clear that um, well, Petey Wheatstraw he's two things. He is a um, a nickname, a folkloric character. Right. Um, a guy named William Bunch, uh, who is born in 1902, takes on the name P.D. Wheatstraw and becomes a very successful bluesman, records 160-some sides for a DECA in, uh, in St. Louis. But specifically, he comes across P.D. Wheatstraw in the, in the book. I, I think he's a street vendor. He is, uh, and, or maybe even a street walker. He's got yeah. a shopping cart full of blueprints. Oh, that was it, blueprints. Which I always blue thought was such a lovely, prints. the blueprints. Yeah. <laughs> Again, we're back to the kind of blue, and, and thinking about the... Uh, Sort of the blues as foundation, or as 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 the kind of building blocks mm, nice, of, of right. what's working here. Yeah, um, he's yeah. also crazy. I mean, sort of crazy in a right, way, right? Right. But and I, I think the the Petey Wheatstraw who lived in the first part of the twentieth century, I also gather was was pretty crazy as well. This is Jaybird Blues. William Bunch, known as Petey Wheatstraw, had an enormous influence on the blues in the nineteen thirties. Most obviously, his impact on the lyrics and vocal stylings of Robert Johnson often considered the most important blues figure of the era. Bunch also died young in 1942, at the age of 39. He was buried in Cotton Plant, Arkansas. You're listening to One Blues Invisible on Interchange on WFHB. I said, come on, baby. Well, well, you know it is my time to go. The lead is putting down And the birds begin to build The lead is putting down And the birds begin to build I know that spring is here Well, well, so I must be getting on up the hill The beach is out in the point Is now putting honey up in the cone The beach is out in the point Is now putting honey up in the cone It is time to get my gal some money Well, well, so she will stay at home Better get on some kind of time Because the put it in will soon be gone You better get on some kind of time That was Petey Wheatstraw's Jaybird Blues. This is Interchange on WFHB. Ralph Ellison is our subject today. Jason Fickle hosts with guest M. Cooper Harris, author of Ralph Ellison's Invisible Theology. In this segment, Harris explains how an invisible theology is present in Ellison's masterpiece, as well as Ellison's idea of cooperative antagonism, the thing that opposes you can guide you to achieve your ends, a jazz sensibility, to be sure. And I haven't got 
It is my time to go Ooh, Well, because I'm regular to G-Bird in whistling time Well, so I want to take a turn now um, and talk a little bit about uh, about the title of your book, Invisible okay. Theology. Um, yes. Because, uh, as, as you say somewhere in the book, uh, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison is a secular book by a secular writer. Right. Nominally. But, it, but your book is completely persuasive um, about invisibility being not only a racial, mm-hmm. but, uh, but truly a religious uh, thing. <laughs> right. So describe a little bit about sure. about the invisibility and the theology that's in mm-hmm. this book. So I think I would begin by saying that Ellison's concept of invisibility is is already wrapped up in many ironies, right? Yes. So yes. so to be to be invisible, uh we now know and understand that it means like you're not seen or recognized or you don't you don't scan within systems that are themselves oppressive or or don't include or you're you're not literally maybe not seen on the streets because you're marked as dangerous or other or not important. Right. Uh, but there again, part of the irony of that is that um, the most uh, visible aspect of, of racial identity in many cases is phenotype, is is skin, shade, hue, mm-hmm. color, pigmentation, what we these see. kinds of what we see. Right. And so the idea of, of having this, this kind of visible marker that renders one invisible, mm-hmm. we're already dealing with a kind of uh, some some ironies here yeah. that I think, and the other thing that I would say is that while certainly it makes sense to think of invisibility as marginalization as a social property, uh-huh. there are these other qual- properties to invisibility. Uh, he he says, "I am an invisible man." No, I'm not a spook. Or right. Hollywood ectoplasm, I'm not a uh, spook like Edgar, Edgar Allan Poe. Immediately he's invoking ghosts. Right. And so, uh, and one of the things I do in the book is I, I trace sort of the way that invisibility, um, biblically speaking, uh, with the Puritans um, or right. with uh, Congo, spirit, mm-hmm. forms of spirituality, death and the invisible powers is one mm-hmm. of the great books about that. And so I look at ways that the, the sense, the concept of invisibility has sort of cycled through different religious traditions over a, a couple of several thousand years. Right. And e- even more uh, literally in the book, um, well, Ellison is also drawing on so much, uh, not only Melville, but also the Bible itself, um, what what some of us call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. And um, I'm, I'm particularly um, the apocalypse that happens toward right. the end of the um, uh, of the novel. Um, you write about here um, the riot, the, the riot, riot, in Harlem, riot in Harlem. Right. right? Yeah. Can you go ahead and read from page sixty-seven of your book about that and kind of the turn and the colors that kick in there? Sure. Finally, this religiously inflected destruction of Harlem and thereby of the Harlem Renaissance's scientific modernity is colored by another influence, the blues, that shares a similar investment in vernacular wisdom, but runs counter to the practical exigencies of religiosity. The blues offers a folk idiom that measures the blackness of blackness and acknowledges intuitive complexities of human experience. In this way, it is unscientific, the yokel rather than the boxer in the novel's prologue. Yeah, and then um, you go on to describe in the book all the different times he literally uses the word blue um, in that sequence, the um, like a blue dream, the blue tinted faces, the blue mysteriousness of the dark. The area is enveloped in a blue 
uh, a blue glow, actually. And as you say here, whereas blues is frequently understood as a secular category, uh, in contrast to the sacred spirituals, um, Ellison conflates biblical forms and illusions with these symbolic articulations of the blues. Um, James Cone calls blues songs secular spirituals. Right. And um, and uh, what I feel like that you tease out in the book is that um, not only is this so-called secular novel, uh, it's actually right shot through with theology. As is the as is blues music itself. Exactly. No, I think there's a there's often a false dichotomy. Right. That's given over, especially to the blues, uh, but also, um, and and this is certainly the case with Ellison, who was not officially a member of any kind of uh, religious organization. Wasn't. Uh, I mean, he he grew up going to an AME church occasionally. Um, but but even didn't have the the difficult relationship with religious organizations that people like Hurston and Wright and mm-hmm. and uh, Hugh Langston Hughes uh, and certainly Baldwin had later too. So he's he is entirely uh, he's he's kind of religiously Switzerland uh, in a way. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Which, which is which is what makes I think um, the the tack to a kind of reading in religious and theological sources to make sense of, of his work. Uh, so rich, but I think counterintuitive for a lot of people. It is counterintuitive, uh, but yet completely persuasive. Uh, one of the words that uh, you and I are using is the word irony. Yes. Um, and and uh, uh, I've bec- as the years go by, I've become more fascinated by that word. And I know you've, you've studied irony outside and written about irony outside this book as well. Right. But, but um, can you tell us a little bit about what irony um, – means inside um, both Invisible Man, the novel, and, mm-hmm. um, and kind of the religiosity or religion itself. Sure. I think one of the things for Ellison is that whereas one of the things that distinguishes him from, I think, uh, much, much of the racial politics of his time was that there was often a which side are you on kind of mentality. Okay. Uh, there were a lot of binaries, a lot of this good, this bad, this, there's one way to do things. And I think for Ellison, he was very much wrapped up um, in what he called uh, antagonistic cooperation. Antagonistic cooperation. Or sometimes cooperative antagonism. Cooperative antagonism. What and, does that mean? And so the idea is that the very thing that opposes you is also the thing that can somehow guide or aid you ah, in the okay. achievement of your ends. And so there's a kind of, there's a working out. There's a, a, a process of, of aggregation or negotiation uh-huh. uh, that takes place. And I think he sees, uh, he draws this. This is his jazz or, or blues sensibility in a way as well, that uh, you're, you're presented with, um, with, a, with a set of circumstances and that in the moment you have to to work them out, and so you might oh, right. uh, you might find that, uh, for instance, if you take a, a blues predicament, right, uh, the very thing that that seems to be holding you down or, or or beating you down may also be the thing that helps you get over to the next thing. Uh-huh. He's also uh, invested in something he called the tragic comedic, yes, which yes. is again kind of the the a, a tearful laughter, right? right. And, and there's a there's a phrase with sorrowful laughter for all that he that he uses at at one point or that I, I pick up on right. in the novel. And so it's a notion and an acknowledgement that life in general, 
uh, probably for any or many of us, is a low-down, dirty shame. Right. For him, in very specific ways, or, or people like him, he would say, there are specific ways in which, which it's a low-down, dirty shame, but you can't allow that to defeat you. And for him, right. uh, the blues is, or jazz becomes an expression of, of, he would say, humanity in the face of this defeat. It's the will to live in the face of certain defeat. And, and I think that these kinds of swirling oppositions for him draw from a, from a highly ironic place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's what I kept coming to, and you and you say it in your book as well. Our protagonist finds himself in these situations that he doesn't understand the situation that he's in. For example, exactly. with the letter, as simple as the letters, he doesn't understand the letters are bad, not good. He doesn't understand when he's speaking. Uh, for instance, he comes across an eviction of an elderly couple. Right. Quite a moving scene, and he it's uh, a veritable museum of of African American history that's <laughs> placed on the curb. Yes, exactly. Literally yeah. on the curb, and he starts speaking and doesn't even realize the power that he's having. Thing, which is exactly. why uh, the, someone from the Brotherhood, I think, kind of recognizes that That's talent right. That's and draws discovered. It's discovered by the Brotherhood. Yeah. One thing I want to touch on real quickly is the year this comes out is 1952. Right. And you mentioned uh, in the book uh, another, a couple other major works, right. um, strongly theological works that clearly are, are, are fascinatingly so closely related to Invisible Man. I, you persuaded me, such yeah. as the Reinhold Niebuhr's uh, work. Uh, the Irony of American History. The Irony of American History, that's right. right. Yeah. Which is actually published the week before, which wow. at the end of the day doesn't really mean all that. I mean, it means no more than if it had been published a month before, but it's a, it's this interesting sort of um, um, convergence yeah. here um, where I mean, there are phrases that, that resonate very strongly even across the books uh, yeah. that that are it, it was really remarkable to me this became actually one of the first when i was in the process of of writing things i found i was looking for for early reviews of invisible man and saw this review of the niebuhr wow and then i read the niebuhr and it, it is strongly resonant of of ellison you're listening to interchange on wfhb our show is one blues invisible about what guest M. Cooper Harris calls the invisible theology in Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Jason Fickle is our host. I want to mention that um, when we were talking about the apocalypse the segment, back to that, um, as how what, what popped into my head is this great song by um, uh, the most famous version that I know is by Sun House, the uh, blues man who was born in 1902 in Mississippi. He has this great song called John the Revelator. Oh yeah, who's that writing? Who's that writing? John the Revelator. That is such a great song and we'll listen to that one. Um, that uh, recording was from 1965. Obviously a much older song. Oh wow. Um, but he, but he, uh, Sunhouse lived long enough to kind of be rediscovered to span those those periods. Right, exactly. And, and he's talking uh, and he's talking about um in my mind, John the Revelator, especially as Sun House does it, I feel like he stepped out of um, the 19th century with that. Um, and, and also in Invisible Man, um, I, I think it's the person maybe who works at the paint factory who, who, who right. says something about he doesn't... Uh, Lucius Brockaway. I, you, you Lucius Brockaway, yeah. Don't trust the, those 1900 boys. They just aren't any good. They ain't no good. Yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, let's read that quote. Yeah, that's... that's it's the, <laughs> I told him these here young 1900 boys ain't no good for the job. They ain't got the nerves. No, sir. 
They just ain't got the nerves. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. And you feel like when you hear Sun House uh, play, you feel like uh, Sun House does got the nerves, I think. Yes. Uh, to put to put across uh, John the Revelator. You know, it's them. Tell me who's that riding. John the Revelator. Sun House does got the nerves. This is John the Revelator, the 1965 version by Eddie James' Sun House Jr., first recorded in 1930 by Blind Willie Johnson. You're listening to One Blues Invisible, hosted by Jason Fickle, with guest M. Cooper Harris. This is Interchange on WFHB. Christ, 12 three made away. He said, watch with me one hour, till I go yon and pray. Tell him when I said I'll be back someday. Now, who's that riding? Tell me who's that riding. Tell me who's that riding. That was John the Revelator by Sun House. You're listening to Interchange. Geography is fate in this segment on the invisible theology of Ralph Ellison as we hear about Oklahoma City's Deep Deuce neighborhood and the many cultural confluences found there that shaped Ellison's art. Ellison wrote, So, long before I thought of writing, I was claimed by weather, by speech rhythms, by Negro voices and their different idioms, by music, by death, by newly born babies, by manners of various kinds, by street fights, circuses and minstrel shows, by vaudeville and moving pictures, by prize fights and foot races, baseball games and football matches, by parades, public dances and jam sessions, Easter sunrise ceremonies and large funerals, by contests between fire and brimstone preachers, and by presiding elders who got laughing happy when moved by the Spirit of God. Um, I want to read a, a quote from an, uh, a Ralph Ellison essay, and maybe you could tell me a little bit about this go into the territory. Yes. So, like I said, he never finishes the novel, right. the second novel. The second novel. Um, but he does write and teach a great deal. He and does. And has these great essays. So this one, Going to the Territory, um, he talks about, uh, he has a piece called Remembering Richard Wright. Yes. His mentor, whom in some sense he kind of has a break with because he's creating a different novel about race, of right. race, um, and religion. Um, so, but in that essay, he says, um, um, Wright harnessed his revolutionary tendencies to a political program which he hoped would transform American society. And there he's talking about a, a version of communism. Is that, would you say that's the case, uh, socialism? Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he's moving sort of a, across the, the political left in the, in, from the 20s, he dies, I think, in 1960. So. Yeah, and then, then uh, Ellison goes on to say, he, meaning Wright, was well aware of the forces ranked against him, but in his quiet way, he was as arrogant in facing up to them as was Louis Armstrong in a fine, blaring way. And this is one of a great sentence about Louis Armstrong. And yeah. then he, uh, Ellison, talking about himself here, says, To a young Oklahoman, this attitude of rights was affirmative. And again, ge- geography is fate. For in that state, our people fought back. We seldom won more than moral victories, but we fought back, as can be seen from the many civil rights victories that were initiated there. And as can be heard in the southwestern jazz and the performances of the Jimmy Rushings, the Hot Lips Pages, the Count Basies, the Benny Motons, and the Charlie Christians. 
We were an assertive people, and our mode of social assertion was artistic, mainly musical as well as political. But there was also the Negro church, wherein you heard the lingering accents of 19th century rhetoric with its emphasis upon freedom and individual responsibility, a rhetorical style that gave us Lincoln, Harriet Tubman, Harriet Beecher Stowe, and the other abolition-preaching Beechers, which gave us Frederick Douglass, John Jasper, and many other eloquent and heroic Negroes whose spirit still moves among us through the contributions that they made to the flexibility, music, and idealism of the American language. Yeah. And, and I just love how um, Ellison is able to tie in, boy, he ties in a lot there, and, and with some specific great, uh, great musicians, right. the church, and, and Abraham Lincoln. I mean, uh, it doesn't get much bigger than that. He's, he's, he's good at pulling things together like that. Uh, yeah, he's, uh, he grew up in what was known as the Deep Deuce, so uh-huh. Second Street, Second Avenue, I forget which, but the Deep Deuce area which was uh i don't know if it's exactly the same as like bronzeville or or some of the other great Mm -hmm. black neighborhoods of the time but this was oklahoma city's version uh he knew charlie christian growing up uh all of the bands were coming through swinging out that way as a young person this was his uh his his imaginary and and it really it's really remarkable to me how um influential music is I think in the construction of his language, in the construction of his understanding of art and literature. You know, he was a trumpet player first. Right. In fact, he, he uh, heavily influenced by a high school music teacher and goes right. to Tuskegee. I think on a music on to a, study music on a trumpet scholarship. A trumpet he, scholarship. A, yeah. a funny story is he uh, used to be chased out of the chapel by George Washington Carver. Wow. Whose laboratory was in the basement, uh, <laughs> and and Ellison would uh, would disturb him with his practice in the chapel. Uh, but he yes, he went to go uh, study trumpet with uh, William Dawson, who ran the music program at Tuskegee at the time, had this, he was known by the sort of the horrible uh, misunderstanding nickname as the Black Gershwin. Oh, right. For yeah, his, I came uh, his attempts that, yeah. to write a Negro symphony, uh-huh. uh, blending the classical and, and uh, spirituals and, and these kinds of things. But uh, he was also strongly influenced by a, a pianist named Hazel Harrison, who was who was friends with Prokofiev in Russia and and had uh, was celebrated on the continent, wow. yet could not play in wow. most of the major concert halls in the U.S. Wow! Um, and so he's he has this remarkable uh, musical training, and it's only when he reads T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland that he decides really? to forsake his trumpet. Wow. And to begin uh, writing. That's the, that's the, the creation myth that he tells well, that's about a good himself. One. That's yeah. a good one. Here's another featuring Oklahoma City's son and influential jazz guitarist, Charlie Christian, dead of TB at 25. This is Royal Garden Blues by the Benny Goodman Sextet. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Thank you. 
Support for Interchange comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. Garden Blues by the Benny Goodman Sextet, featuring Charlie Christian on Amplify Guitar. You're listening to Interchange with Jason Fickle and M. Cooper Harris, talking about the civil religious orientation of Ralph Waldo Ellison. In this final segment, we'll hear about Ellison's version of the Pledge of Allegiance, One Blues Invisible, with sorrowful laughter for all, as well as the reefer dream of the unnamed hero of Invisible Man. Cooper, one thing I wanted to ask you about um, is this incredible thing that uh, Ellison writes, not part of the novel, um, but really informs it, um, and uh, it's it's kind of a pledge of allegiance. Is that right? Right. It's uh, it's from 1981 is where I'm placing it. I actually found it among his papers. No kidding. In the archive, written on the back of uh, he was writing a, a memoir at one point. Um, should I sort of read you about this? Yeah. About yeah, the process, yeah, I, because I think the um, the way I have it here kind of captures... Yeah, I love that. So um, go ahead and read that. Around 1981, as he worked on his memoirs, a project that, like his second novel, he would never complete, Ellison scribbled the words to the Pledge of Allegiance in pencil on a one-quarter filled typescript page. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the USA, he wrote, and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God. This under God, a later edition he inserts with a carrot, suggesting that Ellison never grew accustomed to it. That under was, God was added in the it 50s. It was added later, right. Indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Directly below this official version, one finds Ellison's own rendition of the pledge, written in words that pun in meter and rhyme on the American credo's pieties. One nation indivisible becomes one blues invisible with sorrowful laughter for all. Such a statement... Indeed, his own faithful pledge nicely encapsulates what we might call Ellison's civil religious orientation. We really have to take a couple minutes to mention the book begins really on a, perhaps a reefer-fueled meditation on Louis Armstrong's What Did I Do to Be So Black and Blue? That's right. Can you describe the, the little bit of that prologue? The prologue is right, and and this is where the the voice emerges from. So when we've been described, when we've been talking about the plot, the storyline, this is all a memory that takes place right. inside um, the frame of the prologue and the epilogue. And and so we we sort of we begin with the prologue, we go back a long way, and we work our way back up to what is the present tense of the prologue when we get to the epilogue. The prologue and the epilogue are 
I think one of the one of the things that I really like about them, I, when you know, thinking about the Book of Revelation with Ellison, yeah. is they are biblically weird. They are in biblically a, in a way, weird, and so right. you have ironic. You have, <laughs> yeah, you have these preachers and sermons, and and Weltschmerz yeah. music, and and part of it is well, part almost all of it is this reefer dream. He asks a hipster on the corner for a cigarette, and right. he gives him a, a reefer, and so he smokes it. And it, it says he throws off his sen- uh, it doesn't throw off it it enhances his sense of time as he says right and he puts on multiple co- multiple copies of five, this recording five five five, of, five phonographs five playing. phonographs at one time playing what did I do to be so black and blue with Louis Armstrong who recorded that one in 1929 so yes. um, it really it, it's a great it's a great way to uh, it, it draws me and it goes out to this central um, so many central ironies and and juxtapositions and celebrations really that are right. in this book. It's a it's the protagonist doesn't doesn't uh, have it easy at any point in this book. <laughs> no, uh, but I think if you want a two word summation of what was good and right and just for Ralph Ellison, those two words would be Louis Armstrong. Right. Uh, wow. He that is the the sound that is the attitude that comes from that sound. Uh, and you know Louis Armstrong. Like Ellison had, you know, his run-ins with uh, younger musicians, with right. with musicians who were perhaps more uh, more adamant or militant in their own political right. um, uh, understandings of how a musician ought to be. Mm-hmm. No one more innovative than Louis Armstrong, but yet late in his career, he's kind of seen uh, as an older figure. Really, that's not right. out of touch. He's out of touch. Yeah. Well. Thank you so much. Real quick, before we let you go, um, uh, people uh, ask this all the time, but what's your next project? This is a great one, by the way, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Theology. What's up next? Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for the chance to to be here and to discuss and for, for your outstanding uh, questions. Next on the uh, on the docket yeah. is uh, it's a book. Uh, I'm sticking with irony. Okay. Uh, it's a, a book titled, or, or right now titled, uh, Muhammad Ali and the Irony of American Religion. Wow, fantastic. And so it, uh, there's not been a, a book written by a religious studies scholar about the boxer Muhammad Ali. So wow. Wow. I'm trying to take that on. Uh, wow, good. And hoping good. no one scoops me. So, <laughs> I well, we'll definitely look forward to uh, to reading anything and all about that. And again, thank you so much, Cooper Harris, for uh, for joining us today. Thank you, Jason Pickle. That's our show. This is What Did I Do to Be So Black and Blue by Louis Armstrong, a two-word summation of all that's good and right. Thanks to Jason Fickle for hosting today's program and to M. Cooper Harris, revealing the theological undersong that is everywhere heard in Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Next time on Interchange, a more perfect union. On June 26, 2015, the Supreme Court of the United States guaranteed the right of marriage to same-sex couples. Our guest, Corey Albertson, argues that this would not have been possible without the unprecedented amount of LGBTQ representation on mainstream television in years prior to the decision. But Albertson stresses that what became essential to this acceptance was heteronormativity. Gay couples became representatives of the patriarchal institution of the family. A more perfect union, next time on Interchange. 
Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon edited this program with assistance from Bryce Martin and Jason Fickle selected the music. Wes Martin is our executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie. Coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. All my life through, I've been so black and blue. Even the mouse ran from my house. They laugh at you and scorn you too. What did I do then to be so black and blue? I'm white inside, but that don't help my case. Cause I can't hide what is in my How will it end? Ain't got a friend, my only sin. Is in my skin What did I do To be so black and blue